I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Leia Hazard, graduated from Harvard University working in print journalism and television before the births of her two daughters prompted her to change direction. She is now a practicing National Health Service midwife in Scotland and has worked in a wide variety of clinical areas from labor wards to outpatient clinics, delivering hundreds of babies and caring for countless families along the way. Her memoir, Hard Pushed, A Midwife Story, was a Sunday Times bestseller in the UK. Leia hosts the popular podcast, What the Midwife Said, and is a frequent commentator on women's health across the media. Her latest book recently published is entitled Womb, The Inside Story of Where We All Began, which is the focus of today's interview. So Leia, welcome to Delving In. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So before I start with the first question, I just want to mention, and this is not in your book, but I think I suffer from womb envy. So, <laughs> I think that would be a first. I think uh, not many uh, men or wombless people would, would agree with you, but I'm, I'm intrigued to hear more. Yeah, well, I, I think that Freud missed something there. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe this is the, some sort of weird Oedipal complex variation. Yeah, no, I don't think it's Oedipal. I, you know, I, I think um, from a male perspective, there's probably a lot of relief at knowing that you don't have to go through menstruation and childbirth and menopause. I mean, there's a lot of hardship involved, but there's also a lot of wonder and magnificence involved. And I think your book really speaks to that very nicely. And it's, it's not that it's all peaches and cream. There's a lot of difficulties and suffering, but it's also one of the most special things that, could, that you could imagine. Yeah, I, yeah, that's lovely. I mean, I think it is certainly when things go well and the womb does what it's supposed to do and does it well, there is a sense of awe uh, at, you know, how powerful that organ is and, and what it can do. And I mean, I remember um, after one of my children was born, my husband was suddenly inspired to sign up to run a marathon. And, uh, you know, he was not a regular runner, barely trained. But uh, But I think actually there was a sense of having witnessed me do this powerful thing he felt like well you know how how can i prove myself what wonderful feat can i undertake that's that i can push myself and test myself in that way so yeah maybe there maybe there's some womb envy in there maybe that's not such an uncommon phenomenon yeah my my late friend uh, david stefan who was the director of public health for our county for for many years said that uh, labor stories are like women's war stories there's a kind of surviving something really difficult and scary and painful. Yeah, I mean, I th- a lot of women report that, you know, when they're in labor, they're giving birth, there there is this sort of like liminal space that you enter into, which is the closest, you know, in giving life, it's the closest you get to death in a way. I, I definitely felt that myself, not in a, a scary way, but just I was aware that I was on the border of something beyond my usual experience. And um, I think depending on the context, that can either be traumatic or that can be really empowering. And I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess moving on to the book, that's sort of a, a, that's a truism for the whole experience of having a womb. It can be deeply traumatic or it it can be empowering. So I suppose it would be a natural segue from writing a memoir about being a midwife to exploring the science of the womb and the societal baggage heaped upon it. So tell us about the process for, pun intended, conceiving this book. Yeah, the, the, the pun is forgiven because the, the gestation and birth metaphors are just too apt for uh, the writing process not to use. So that's, that's fine. 
Yeah, well, you you mentioned my last book, which which was a memoir that came out in 2019, and it was a story of my time in midwifery so far, and just a, a broader reflection on what it's like to be a midwife in our health service here in the UK, which is um, incredibly pressurized and challenged, even more so now since the pandemic. And I knew after I wrote that book that I I felt very lucky to have have been published, and I wanted to to do it again, and I wanted to look at these issues again, but with a broader lens, write more about reproductive health and reproductive justice as a whole. But I was having trouble finding a kind of hook into that that would be unique and powerful and engaging. And actually, I was sitting at this desk where your your listeners can't see, but I'm sitting at a desk underneath my daughter's bunk bed <laughs> with a ladder behind me. This is where my my sort of workspace was out of necessity rather than choice. And I was sort of grinding through different ideas one day and it, it literally was just in a moment one afternoon, I thought, well, nobody, nobody's written a book about the uterus or, or have they? And I kind of did a quick search on Amazon and a little Googling and actually found it unbelievable that nobody had written a book about this organ because, you know, it's the same in the US or the UK. If you go into any reasonably sized bookshop, you can find books about practically any system and organ in the body. We have books about brains and books about why we sleep and how we breathe and how we die and what your lungs do and what your gut does. And, you know, we eat this stuff up. We love it. I, I love it. It's fascinating, right? But it seemed like a glaring omission to me that nobody had written a sort of, um, or at least a, a kind of popular, accessible um, commercial book about this organ where we all start off um, and roughly half of us have one. And not only did I hope to share with readers a bit more about what this organ actually does physiologically, but this was where the kind of bigger picture came in. I, I realized that the uterus and how we perceive it and manage it and legislate it was was a lens through which to look at reproductive rights and justice as a whole. And, and that is kind of the, the big message of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to get back to that maybe later in the interview, but I just wanted to uh, kind of orient for the interview that we'll talk about chapters of the book pretty much sequentially just to give a taste there's way more than we can talk about it in, in an hour and I thought it would maybe uh, it would make sense to highlight some of the more surprising things that you talk about things that even a well-informed reader might not know mm-hmm. so I think that would be fun so you, you start out your book by recounting a rather raw encounter of disembodied uteri the plural of uterus mm-hmm. displayed in a museum then you seem to be preparing the reader both for the scientific facts and also for a rich panoply of emotion that overlays those facts. Yes, yeah, so this was a really serendipitous encounter which occurred in the embryonic stages of the book. And, you know, it's, <laughs> we're going to just stay with yours because they're they're so appropriate. Um, so it was not long after I, that afternoon when I had the idea for the book and I was going to Edinburgh, which is about an hour away by train from where I live in, in Glasgow. And I was a little bit early to meet somebody um, and I was passing by the Surgeons Hall Museum, which is a collection attached to the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, a very old and venerable institution. And they have this fascinating museum containing much of their anatomical collection going back to the, the 18th century. And Edinburgh is well known as, as the sort of seat of modern anatomical and physiological study in a way vast collection of specimens of all different organs and parts of the body. So I'm kind of into that stuff, kind of geek out on the, the weird and wonderful and, and kind of stuff in jars. So I thought, well, I'll have a little wander around there before I go and meet my friend. And I went into the museum 
and uh, there are many sort of different sections and, and rooms that one can walk through when you go into this collection and you know you see the kind of glamorous sexy organs first you've got the lungs and the heart and the kidney and there are all these jars with preserved thrombotic veins and, and gangrenous feet and, you know, stuff, <laughs> stuff that I kind of find really interesting but um, I was wondering where are the wombs you know where's the the gynecological stuff. So I went right to the back of the museum and round a little corner. And in the furthest away corner, in the kind of darkest bit, there's maybe uh, one case with four or five shelves of uh, gynecological specimens, including some wombs and jars. And some of these go back a couple of hundred years, some of them a little bit more recent. And each one represents a different kind of pathological condition. So th there are some um, uteruses with cancerous masses or fibroids. There's one that still has a little contraceptive coil inside it. And next to this case is this object called the obstetrical chair, which is a wooden chair that was used, I believe, in maybe 17th, 18th century for laboring women to sit on and kind of brace themselves on. And the midwife or birth attendant could then catch the baby when it, you know, emerged uh, with the mother in this chair. And I just thought, wow, you know, these, these organs, are silent, obviously, but spoke so strongly to me. And, and each one has its own story of the person who owned that womb and carried it with her, you know, for most of her life. Some of these organs have borne children, and yet here they are, these inert blobs in these jars, really. And I was sitting there, totally bowled over by this collection. And as I write in the book, these two other young women sort of were wafting through the room, having looked at the other specimens. And they kind of took a quick kind of double take at the wombs. They were clearly grossed out by what they saw. And one of them said to the other, go uterus before they wandered along to the next the next room uh, with the different specimens. And, and I thought, yeah, go, go uterus, but let's take a bit of a longer look at this organ. Uh, and I think that's probably most people's response to thinking about the womb. They just kind of think, mm, interesting, but kind of gross and move swiftly on. Yeah, and that's probably true of a lot of our innards. I mean, if, when the innards are exposed, like uh, during an injury or a you know, shrapnel wound or whatever, I mean, this is a, a feeling of revulsion and, and fear. I think we're, we're used to seeing only the out, outer surface of the body. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some people wouldn't even want to go into a museum like that. Uh, many people, I'm sure, wouldn't, wouldn't want to look at those things or maybe because of their own injuries or illnesses would, would find that particularly difficult. But as I say at the start of the book, you know, let's let's be braver. Let's be a bit bolder and let's acknowledge that, you know, we all lived inside one at one point anyway. So it must be pretty important. And uh, let's begin at the beginning and, and see what's going on. So, uh, Leah, I share in your delight in overturning preconceptions. There's the word again. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that have become received wisdom. For example, you write uh, that in 1900, French pediatrician Henri Tissier picked up the baton and was the first to pronounce, the fetus lives in a sterile environment. And he theorized from his own experiments that the newborn gut starts off pristine until becoming colonized during transit through that notoriously treacherous passage of the vagina. And you say, apparently not true. <laughs> I thought this was really fascinating because, you know, I always thought that, you know, the reason why, you know, when you break your water, that's, you know, that's because it's all sterile inside and it's not quite that way. Yeah, interesting point. Couple of points to pick up on there. I also believed that the womb was a sterile environment and 
I would say most of what I learned in um, or most of what I write about in the book was actually new to me. I mean, obviously, when I was pitching the book, I had to position myself as the womb lady, you know, a bit of an expert. And I like to think that I probably did already know more about the womb than the average person on the street. But I, too, had absorbed lots of these really outdated medical ideas. Um, one of which is the sterile womb paradigm. So this idea that the uterus is this pristine, germless, empty vessel that's basically just sitting there waiting for a fetus to come along and that there's there's really no life happening there unless there is actually, you know, a, a baby gestating within the uterus. Yeah, this this was a paradigm that existed for many years until really you know, only in the last 20 years have we, have we really refined the opposite idea, which is that actually the uterus has its own microbiome. And this was mind-blowing to me because I had no idea, and I think most people have no idea that this research exists. But because techniques, uh, research techniques in, you know, analyzing um, tiny bits of endometrial tissue and other sort of tissues from the womb, because these techniques have advanced, we're able to look very closely at what's actually happening on that level and we know now that your average healthy uterus is teeming with life with you know billions of uh, microorganisms including bacteria viruses fungi even and that the balance of this microbiome uh, we think already probably has a lot to do with one's disease state and the overall physiological health of that womb so we know for example that an altered microbiome has a correlation with endometrial cancer, cancer of the lining of the womb. Now, you mentioned also uh, when waters break, and we, we have this idea that um, those, those waters uh, within the amniotic sac are sterile. We, we think that probably is true. So the uterus itself has its microbiome, but the sac within which the fetus is kind of floating and gestating should be more or less sterile so that's that's the sort of environment within an environment but as far as the womb goes uh yes there is this microbiome there amazing and then the next uh, surprising finding that that you talk about is with menstruation that only 36 percent of menstrual tissue is blood and, and in fact there's a new neutral scientific name that you talk about called menstrual effluent Yes, exactly. To, to, to point that out. Yeah, Yeah. so we, when we think about periods, we just think, well, it's just blood that comes out. So red blood cells. Maybe people might think, okay, there might be some white cells or some platelets or whatever. But what's actually coming out is more accurately referred to by researchers as menstrual effluent. It's, it's a flow rather than just blood. And it consists of immune cells, cells from the lining of the womb, yes, red blood cells, also white blood cells, and lots of really sophisticated biochemical markers that we now know um, may be markers for disease. So, so this, again, was another concept that was really mind-blowing for me, that this stuff that comes out, this menstrual effluent, um, probably can tell us a lot about things like um, endometriosis, uh, possibly fibroids, cancers, um, and if we can learn to analyze this stuff properly, could save people many years of really distressing, costly, invasive investigations en route to diagnosis. 
Yeah, and, and you mentioned the possibility of probably not so far into the future of having detectors of biomarkers in menstrual products. So it could be like a smart tampon, for instance, <laughs> you know, that would, <laughs> exactly. maybe, you would maybe you wouldn't even have to deal with uh, transmitting, it would automatically transmit to your doctor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds kind of laughable because it just sounds like so space age and crazy, but it's, it's actually really not. There, there is a company, and I talk about it in the book, called Next Gen Jane. It's an American company that is working on developing this smart tampon with funding from the National Institute of Health. And the idea would be that and maybe not particularly this product, but a similar product maybe in the future, would um, absorb menstrual effluent, would have some sensors within it that could analyze that tissue, and then could send that information to an app on your phone. And you could then potentially loop in your general practitioner or your OBGYN, and they also could have access to that diagnostic information. So, so this is really accelerating diagnostics in a way that women have never really encountered before. I mean, for example, for a disease like endometriosis, where the tissue similar to the lining of the womb grows outside the womb and causes pain and inflammation, most people with endometriosis wait on average seven to 10 years to be diagnosed. Um, and they quite often go through really difficult investigations like uh, laparoscopy, hysteroscopy and oftentimes are just not believed or, you know, not followed up on. But if we have technology like this smart tampon or something similar, it's literally at your fingertips, you know, that you could have your menstrual effluent analyzed each month and send that information to your, your medical practitioner. It's amazing. And we'll probably also have smart toilets that will analyze your poop in, in the toilet and send uh, that to your gastroenterologist. <laughs> I mean, I think that already exists. <laughs> I think that, unfortunately, the world seems a lot more interested in poop than it does in menstrual tissue. So there's a lot more investment in that side of things. But uh, but yeah, the technology undoubtedly is there and will advance um, in the next few years. I, I don't know if it's going to be available in my reproductive lifetime, but, but maybe for my children, uh, things might be quite different. So this is going to maybe uh, start to touch on the other aspect of your book, which is about the you know, justice issues and um, misogyny and, and so, so on, that uh, you write that it's not true that the womb is a passive recipient, you know, just waiting for that valiant winner of the sperm race to enter the egg. And you talk about Vaclav Insler's lab in Tel Aviv in 1979 that found out that the uterus can store sperm. And you also talk about how the womb can respond to orgasm by drawing in the sperm and maybe re even releasing it at the uh, appropriate spot. I mean, it's, so it's a, really a much more of a mutual dance than is uh, commonly appreciated. Absolutely. And again, this was contrary to everything that I learned at school. I grew up in America um, in the 80s. <laughs> I had uh, sex ed or health class or whatever it's called these days. And uh, I was very much taught that the female body is very passive in sex and conception, and it really is this sort of macho, heroic, questing sperm that travels up the treacherous vagina and makes its way through the cervix. And then, you know, the, the really special, really clever one that swims really, really hard finds its way to the egg, which is just sitting there, um, and, and then uh, ignites this new life. But actually, um, once again, that's wrong. Nothing could be further from the truth. We know that as I mentioned, there was this research back in, in the 60s in Tel Aviv by Václav Insler, who uh, found that the neck of the womb, the cervix, actually has 
little pockets within it. He called them cervical crypts that can store sperm for, for quite an amount of time and then potentially release it um, at a time when the, the woman is more likely to be fertile. And not only that, but as, as you've alluded to, during the act of sex itself, and if the female has an orgasm, we know that there, there's this kind of peristaltic wave-like motion in the lining of the womb that can actually draw sperm deeper inside and, and facilitate um, conception. So Mary Roach uh, referred to this in her book Bonk as the upsuck theory. And it sounds like a bit of a um, kind of crude term, but, but it's true. People have thought of the womb as something that just flows out, you know, babies come out, blood comes out, it can't actually pull anything in. But we know now that that is not true. And that the uterus is actually actively facilitating conception in these ways. Yeah, amazing. Well, I want to have you read a little section, a uh, passage, uh, starting with humanity's fascination with pregnant bodies. Sure. Humanity's fascination with the transformation of pregnant bodies seems to be innate and perpetual from primitive fertility figures with their pendulous breasts and bellies to modern day tabloid spreads of celebrities cradling their bumps in carefully staged photo shoots. Simply by expanding, the womb transforms its owner's body from private to public, from sexual to maternal, inviting us as individuals and as a society to project our views and values on the mother as she changes before our eyes. Yeah, it's a beautiful writing, and I, I just want to mention that, that especially the, um, the openings of each of the chapters are just beautifully written and really evocative. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I think it really speaks to just how much free associating baggage, cultural appropriations of, of uh, and maybe not cultural appropriation, but sexual appropriation. You, you talk about, about male doctors kind of taking over the reproductive arena, it's understandable that uh, women would have, uh, you in particular, would have resentment about that and maybe minor annoyance about uh, that the premature contractions were, quote unquote, discovered by John Braxton Hicks, as if women didn't already know about this thing, to the irritating use of an unscientific term like irritable uterus, to the profoundly disturbing phenomena of forced sterilizations. You really go through many uh, different aspects of this. I'm just curious, this isn't something that's in your book, but do you feel like this is apt to change more rapidly now as more women are entering the medical profession? I mean, I, I know that still men are mostly in charge at the administrative level, but one would think that, I know in the United States, I think a majority of medical students are women now. And certainly in, in the OBGYN area, I would think it's a strong majority. I think it... It definitely is promising that that's the case. Speaking as a proud mother of a female uh, med student myself, <laughs> I, I, I hope that young women like my daughter will go on to make a difference. But I think we should be cautious of being overly optimistic because these women, these female doctors still work within a system that is deeply embedded with patriarchy and uh, misogynistic principles and ideas and practices. And many women will, will tell you that some of the worst treatment and uh, language they've, they've received and heard from doctors has been from female doctors. So you would like to think that, you know, oh, my doctor's a woman, she's going to be more of an ally or she'll understand or she'll maybe treat me in a different way. And, and 
you know, oftentimes that is the case, but not always. It's not a guarantee because um, even female doctors are trained in a in a tradition that is deeply patriarchal. Um, obstetrics itself and all the guidelines and protocols and practices that come with it are deeply patriarchal. And so even female doctors are are trained in that tradition. So it takes a bit of courage and um, insight to break away from that. Yeah, I, I certainly cultural change is very slow. And, and you have women in African countries supporting the idea of female circumcision, which is really not circumcision, it's really mutilation. And you would think that all the women would be totally against it and just going along with it out of fear, but not always true. Yeah, that's certainly that's certainly the case. And, you know, we know we have to be really careful when we talk about cultural traditions that are quite violent and harmful, but yet are really valued by those local communities and, and treated as sacred and special. And so although our Western medical industrial complex is very different um, from those kind of communities, we, we too have uh, absorbed our own ideas and values from a patriarchal tradition. And uh, it takes a lot of, as I said, a lot of courage and, and uh, insight to challenge that. Would you just read on page 188 uh, from the earliest recorded history and th through uh, it affects the patient's brain? From the earliest recorded history, men and medics, and for millennia the two were one and the same, have argued that women's moods and minds are controlled by their dysfunctional wombs. Since the dawn of civilization, almost as soon as man could put pen to paper or quill to papyrus, he began to document his impression of the uterus as a wily, wandering, problematic organ. In much the same way as we might now personify a particularly nasty virus, the womb has long been seen as a mischievous marauder that can whip through the body on a whim, wreaking havoc on every organ in its path, until finally it infects the patient's brain. So here you really talk about the prejudices and the associations made to the womb. I mean, the psychoanalytic term hysteria comes from the word for uterus, the Latin word for uterus that there's uh, an assumption that uh, women are inherently, because of carrying a womb, are subject to all kinds of emotional problems and uh, emotional rather than rational thinking and all those sorts of prejudices. So you, you really bring out that point really beautifully. And I think to a modern ear, or at least a modern educated ear, it all sounds so ridiculous now, but it was you know, widely believed by the educated classes uh, with few exceptions. Well, it is still unfortunately widely believed. I mean, yeah. many many a woman who has expressed a strong opinion has then been asked, oh, "Are you on your period?" or "You know, is this your bad week?" or whatever. And you know, you're just so emotional. And I, I reference in the book Donald Trump's uh, debate that was moderated by Megyn Kelly, and because Megyn Kelly was asking him some difficult questions. He said, well, that you you know, you could see she was out for blood. There was blood coming out of her nose, blood coming out of her wherever. The you know, implication being that she was on her period and that's why she was being so irrational and, and difficult. So yes, you're right that, you know, it seems ridiculous that this was the perception many uh, years ago, but unfortunately the perception persists today. And had to be really careful in this chapter talking about a kind of womb brain psychological connection because 
although there is some research emerging, and I talk about it in the book, that maybe the womb does have some kind of psychological effect, I also really didn't want to return to this dangerous, reductive idea that the brain is in some way controlled by the womb or, you know, overly influenced by the uterus, which just is not the case. Yeah, you also talk about, uh, I'm not sure who you're quoting here, but if those without uteri had to bleed once a month, they would have turned it off long ago. Oh, that was Sophia Yen. Yes. Yeah. Uh, creator of the hashtag uh, periods optional. Mm-hmm. And she, I guess, I don't know what the percentages are, but I'm sure there's some certain percentage of women who wish they'd never had to menstruate ever again. Mm-hmm. And then you have the other side, uh, Professor Sarah Hill, uh, who's an evolutionary social psychologist at Texas Christian University, author of How the Pill Changes Everything, Your Brain on on Birth, is horrified, you know, horrified at the idea of turning that off. It's such an important part of being a woman. It's so natural. And plus, there are probable medical consequences of shutting off uh, estrogen to a developing brain during adolescence and so on. So I, I really pro- applaud you for bringing in both points of view, not just one. Thank you. I thought it was really important to include both points of view because they're both strong and to a degree, you know, very evidence-based. And there will be readers who will identify very strongly with, with one or the other. And and to be honest, I'm still not sure exactly, you know, where I stand. So I thought it was, it was important to give voice to both. Um, Dr. Sophia Yen, who you referred to, is a qualified um, physician and she runs a kind of mail order um, contraceptive service I think based in California and her idea is that periods can and should be optional for all menstruating people um, because you should be able to use continuous hormonal contraception so whereas the the pill was initially designed to be used with a kind of week-long break she's arguing that you should be able to safely skip that break take hormones continuously, not have a withdrawal bleed, and reap what she sees as the the physical and possibly intellectual benefits of, of never having to have a period. Whereas what Sarah Hill is saying, again, with a really strong evidence base, is that the hormones used in oral contraceptives, estrogen and progesterone, can actually have really far-reaching effects on cognition, libido, um, everything down to the kind of partner you're attracted to. And she's arguing that particularly in younger women, we just don't know the long-term effects of using these hormones continuously. So it, it's fascinating. It's a lively debate. And uh, yeah, I did try and introduce that with some balance in the book. The other uh, issue that you talk about in terms of a debate, which I find utterly fascinating, even though this is a ways off, and that's having an artificial womb. So not only would, would periods be optional, but pregnancy and birth would be optional. So even pregnancy and birth would, would be optional. And you talk about a, what would be used instead would be called a bio bag. <laughs> you know, it's not a very scientific sounding name, but it gets the point across. And there's kind of competing visions about what's good. I mean, on the one hand, women, many women might applaud this as well and totally freed from the burdens of all this. On the other hand, there are other women that would say, wait a second, this is the most fundamental thing about humanity. How could you take that away? And then you also talk about how women might be pressured to not get pregnant for whatever mm-hmm. reasons. It's a really incredible topic. It is incredible. It's not out with the realm of possibility that this is a technology that becomes available to a point within our lifetime. So 
the bio bag you're referring to was was basically the vessel that was created to gestate a lamb several years ago this picture went viral around the world that that researchers in philadelphia had fully gestated a lamb fetus um in this artificial environment with artificial amniotic fluid and they'd they had carried it to term and similar sorts of mechanisms have been used um for mice to a, to a certain stage of gestation. So it's it's not out with the realm of possibility that we may be at least to partially gestate human fetuses outside of the human body. And, and this is what bioethicists have called ectogestation. So literally outside gestation, out, outside the body. And yeah, you've rightly pointed out that this technology holds some promise, uh, possibly of liberation for people because they can go about their business, their, their working lives, they can maintain their bodily integrity while their baby is happily gestating in a, a bag or a jar or some, you know, some other vessel somewhere else. But it's not without its dangers twofold. So the first count is that, you know, we live in a capitalist society where you could imagine a scenario when the moment corporations, some corporations say to women that um, egg freezing is a, a bonus when you sign up, okay? So it's, it's touted as this positive thing, but in effect, it's saying to women, you can work harder for us for longer years because your eggs will be safely in a freezer somewhere and you can have your baby later once you've put in the hours. And you could maybe imagine a similar scenario where let's say you get a great job at Google or Apple or a big blue chip company and they say, yeah, not only will we give you a corner office and a company car and, you know, free gym membership, but we'll also give you 10 years of access to this ectogestation in our super lab of baby jars so that you can continue working unhindered by pregnancy and you can have your little baby on a shelf and have your lovely family, but you won't have to interrupt your career for us. And again, sounds laughable, but we're not that far away from it at the moment. And the other danger is, as you've said, a sort of more, in, in a way, more ominous social danger. You could see a situation where maybe a woman goes to her midwife at an appointment and just mentions, oh, I had a glass of wine at a party last night. And then the midwife says, oh, right, okay, well, maybe it would be safer for this baby to actually be gestated in a machine rather than in your body because you're you're not a fit mother or, you know, maybe mother's been engaged in some other drug abuse or legal case or whatever, or maybe just on really spurious grounds, you know, maybe because this mother is a certain ethnic group or a certain racial background, we could imagine a scenario where the hospital would say, well, you know, we don't really like mothers like you to gestate their babies because your body's risky. So we're actually going to deliver your baby at, say, 18 weeks. And then for the rest of the gestation, this baby is going to be carried in a nice, safe, bio bag on a shelf. So yes, you know, with any new technology, especially reproductive technology, there there's great potential, but also really serious ethical risks that we have to consider before these technologies become reality, which they, they probably will. Yeah. And I get the impression that you're not all that sanguine, uh, to use another pun, about it going in the right direction. I mean, I it, it could be wonderful. You know, we, we have women who for example, are using surrogacy very happily and successfully now. And, you know, for maybe because they have own, their own medical issues and that they can't actually use their body for gestation. So for them, it could be, you know, maybe another great opportunity that, that wouldn't 
harm or inconvenience another person um, for men or non-binary people who can't you know, gestate in their own bodies, we could potentially see that that would be an appealing thing for them. So it could offer freedoms to some people, but, but yeah, I, I am skeptical to some degree. And then we can even add the, uh, the breakthrough technology of turning somatic cells into germ cells. And so men could have their own uh, ova <laughs> you know, to make the baby from. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy for us to say, you know, this is horrible, this will never happen. But, but this is what people said when IVF became a reality, for example. You know, lots of people said, you're playing God, you can't do this. Some people just weren't made to have babies. And, you know, this is, this is totally unnatural. And yet, you know, now it's it's given so many people the wonderful opportunity to, to have kids when they, they otherwise wouldn't have done. And it's undoubtedly been been a boon for reproductive health. So who knows? I guess the word natural just means what you're used to. Exactly. That's a really good point. Yeah, natural is subjective. So let's segue now to talking about oxytocin. There's a really fascinating section about uh, starting with uh, Vincent Duvignot, a French, another French doctor who succeeded in isolating and synthesizing oxytocin, which uh, many of our listeners may remember as, as being the kind of the love chemical, but it's also the chemical that speeds up labor. And it's become absolutely routine to speed yeah. up women's labor. And it's, you know, this supposed scientific advance. But as you often do in your book, you say it's more complicated than that. There's some real downsides to it, even though it's been a wonder. Yeah, I mean, again, I should start by saying that, um, you know, people have been trying to induce or augment or accelerate labor since time began, really, you know, whether it's to start a labor or to induce abortion, which is something I talk about in the book, you know, women have always tried to find ways to make birth happen sooner, faster, quicker. And they've developed their own ways of doing this in virtually every culture around the world, and um, sometimes safely, sometimes not safely, but it's it seems to be, you know, a basic human desire to have reproductive autonomy. And part of that is um, sometimes deciding when you give birth or how fast you do it. But this took a huge leap forward with um, Duvagnot's discovery of how to um, synthesize oxytocin in the lab. And um, this happened in mid-century. So by the late 1950s, big uh, pharmaceutical companies like Park Davis and Sandoz had jumped on this innovation and began to manufacture their own versions of synthetic oxytocin. And, you know, the 1950s were all about progress and Sputnik, rocket, space age, you know, huge post-war explosion of amazing innovation and technology. And so the narrative of this wonder drug for inducing and speeding up labor really fit into the zeitgeist at that time. And this drug spread around the world like wildfire. And in the book, I talk about Brazilian language at the time referred to induction of labor as narco acceleration, which sounds like brutal and, and really weird to us, but that is actually what it is. So it's become routine. And obstetrics really embraced this idea that women's bodies that were risky, unpredictable, slow, clunky, could suddenly be managed and controlled in this very objective, titrated way. And for example, here we are now in 2023. I'm a midwife. I work in a big, you know, high risk uh, consultant led obstetric unit. 
And I can't count the number of times that I've snapped open an ampoule of um, synthetic oxytocin, run it through a drip and kickstarted somebody's labor or made their labor happen quicker. And this is not without its risks, um, some of which are only really coming to light now because what's happening in both the UK and the US and many countries abroad is that this drug, synthetic oxytocin, which your listeners will probably know as Pitocin, is used off license in regimes and dosages that were never imagined by Duvenot or or the manufacturers. And I actually didn't even realize this until I started kind of asking around other midwives saying, you know, what regime does your hospital use? And how is this given? And almost everybody had a different answer. And we know that the widespread use of this medication, although it can, as with all interventions, you know, sometimes be life-saving and really appropriate, sometimes can have unintended effects like higher rates of uh, postpartum hemorrhage and other uh, sort of categories of morbidity and, and mortality that um, I go into in the book. So again, you know, we've, we've adopted this um, so-called wonder drug, but we really should look back now and question and challenge why we've embraced it so fully and how we use it now. Is it really safe? This temptation to manage and control this unruly organ, um, does it have unintended uh, consequences? Well, well, and as you point out, the synthetic version is different uh, from the natural version. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, and as a result, uh, it doesn't uh, stimulate uh, endorphins, which would help with the pain during during labor. And you also point out that at, at too high a dose, and this is beyond what's approved by FDA in this country, it can interfere with the um, coagulation and of the healing of after the removal of the, of the placenta, you know, that it, it can actually lead to more hemorrhaging than, than would happen otherwise. Yeah. So if you use too much synthetic oxytocin, you can have hyperstimulation of the uterus, which causes too many contractions, too strong, too closer together. And then because that muscle is working so hard, so fast all the time, it then becomes atonic. So it becomes loose and boggy and it can't expel the placenta in the way it should have done. And then you have major issues with um, hemorrhaging, uh, which then has other kind of sequelae for that person um, postnatally and also uh, can cause issues with initiation of breastfeeding um, and, and initial sort of bonding with baby. You know, we know that oxytocin is also the love hormone that um, can contribute majorly in those early hours of um, maternal neonatal contact. And so when we kind of mess with that, yes, we might have good reasons for doing so, but we have to approach it really, really carefully and not just get carried away with the power of being able to do something harder, faster, quicker. Yeah, this one I'd be actually optimistic that it will change for the better because it just takes a few lawsuits <laughs> and, and doctors will get more careful about dosing. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and that may be what it takes. Um, and I spoke to some midwives in the book who are reference the fact that there may be some legal action pending in, in the US. I'm not sure exactly where that stands at the moment. But I think when when women and birthing people wake up to what's actually being done without their fully informed consent, I would imagine there there would be some uproar after that. Let's shift now to talk about loss, because I mean, so much of the book is about birth and the miracle of birth, but there's also, of course, people uh, who give birth to a stillborn baby. So if you wouldn't mind reading uh, on page 150, the beginning of the chapter entitled Loss. Just a moment, a pause, if you will, before we move on. Not the standard minute of silence observed publicly for tragedies that rock a nation, the flag at half-mast, 
the murmurs that ripple across an office or a shopping centre before the showy bowing of heads, the studied solemnity of a newsreader's face. No. A moment, please, for the private sorrow, the personal tragedy, the indescribable loss of a baby. This is a silence made all the more painful in its contrast to the noise that should have rung loudly round the birth space. A raucous first breath, a mother's cry of exultation and relief. Sometimes the womb does wrong. I am, as you may have guessed, an advocate of this organ and a celebrant of all it can do, but I have seen it falter more times than I would like to recall. It would be disingenuous to pretend otherwise. It's okay, though, even essential, to ask why the worst happens. The questioning is part of the grief, and the answers and the language we use to frame them are part of the healing. Yeah, I thought that was just a wonderful passage. I don't think I've ever come across anything quite like it, a, 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 a instruction to take a moment, <laughs> you know, to, which I guess if you were doing it seriously, you would stop reading at that point for a moment. Yeah, and some, some readers might, I guess, you know, a lot of people will have a personal experience that relates to that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's such a complex topic uh, that you've taken on, and I'm really uh, um, impressed that you included this aspect. Thank you. I mean, I, I, I think it wasn't even a question in my mind that I had to, because in my line of work, you know, I've been a midwife for nearly 10 years now. And I think it's only really when you're inside that system that you see how common loss actually is, you know, because we don't really talk that openly in our society about things like uh, miscarriage and stillbirth. We, we kind of imagine that doesn't happen very often or, you know, really, really rare event. And uh, sadly, that's not really the case. Um, you know, almost everybody you speak to, if you really speak to them, will have some story of, you know, whether it's a very early loss practically a missed period at six weeks or something or or a full-term stillbirth so it, it really is important to acknowledge that and address it and, and again to investigate and look at why this happens and as i say in the book although i really celebrate the uterus and, and what it can do it's also important to acknowledge the fact that sometimes it doesn't work the way it should and and that has really catastrophic effect i haven't read your uh, memoir yet although i read about it but I would imagine this passage really uh, relates strongly to that first book of yours in the sense that you know, there's a lot of burnout, I think, among midwives. From what I've read in the National Health Service, is a tremendous amount of pressure. And of course, the situation in the United States is not so great either mm -hmm. for different reasons. But uh, having to deal with, with life and death and, and these kind of, of losses and, and also the intensity of the, the risks and the intensity of the emotion, when, even when things go well, mm -hmm. it would be exhausting. And I was wondering, how, how do you keep yourself sane and keep yourself from burning out? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the emotional load of being people in pregnancy and birth is huge. Um, it's a great privilege and an honor to be there for people at that time, but also sometimes can be really traumatic and difficult. I would say that in itself is not the hardest part of being a midwife. Um, for me, working in, uh, as I said, a very busy, big urban hospital in our National Health Service, um, for me, that's the, the kind of working environment and working culture are the toughest part. You know, I, I love my job in terms of the actual job, 
but what mm -hmm. makes it hard is the machine all around it. So yes, it's emotionally challenging, but that wouldn't be so difficult if I wasn't also working for 12 hours without a break. You know, if I wasn't juggling four patients at once, if I was paid properly, if I was acknowledged properly. And there are many other sort of systemic issues that make midwifery um, particularly challenging. And, and as you as you said, rightly so, I think it's really similar for a lot of hospital-based midwives or obstetric nurses, um, slightly different role, but similar arena um, in the US. Uh, in terms of avoiding burnout, um, I haven't. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> to, be, to be brutally honest, I've, I've definitely gone through some ups and major downs in my career. Even the latter half of last year, I, I had to take about three, four months out because um, it's just that the, the environment is just untenable. I don't think this career is going to be sustainable for me long term, to be honest. Um, but I'm very fortunate that I have other ways of contributing, like writing books and, and um, being with women and birthing parents in other ways. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a constant struggle. And the emotional load is, is part of that, but also systemic issues definitely contribute. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the machines. I mean, the, the whole medicalization of, of childbirth is both a boon and a bane. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's I'm sure, saved many, many lives, but it also mm -hmm. can, doesn't have to, but it can depersonalize the whole experience. And of course, that's what's really needed as much as the medical part is the human side of things. And, and you, you speak to this with, uh, you talk about Dr. Ihab Abbasi, who's created a procedure for a more meaningful C-section, which you would think that would be the most medical type of birth at all. It's a surgery. And yet it can be done differently. Could you speak about that a bit? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely not anti-intervention as a whole. And I think that's an important point, you know, to, to me, because I've said, I think, you know, induction of labor can be life-saving and, and likewise with cesarean section. I had one myself for my first daughter, so I'm, you know, not going to complain and this procedure absolutely can be life-saving when used judiciously and appropriately. But as with things like synthetic oxytocin and, you know, again, a major intervention like cesarean section, we have to continuously question, are we using this at the right time, in the right way, for the right people? And in many countries around the world, um, cesarean section rates are on the rise, 30, 40, 50% of births. And, this, you know, this is major surgery, although we've normalized it because so many people have it, we, we shouldn't stop questioning whether it's really necessary for nearly half or half of all women to, to deliver surgically. So putting that debate to one side, uh, yes, you would think that cesarean section would always be a very clinical, depersonalized, potentially traumatic experience. And, and for many people it is, but some doctors are now practicing a slightly different form of the operation. So when a cesarean section is, is planned, so not in a very pressurized emergency situation, but when it's planned, there's this kind of alternative way of working called a gentle cesarean or natural cesarean, where the birthing person's experience is really prioritized in making things as gentle and special and individualized as possible. So for example, maybe the lights are dimmed, maybe there's music, maybe some of the sort of drips and wires and leads are a little bit out of the way or concealed. In some cases, the screen separating the birthing person from the, the view of their abdomen is uh, sort of dropped down or moved to the side. And usually in a sort of traditional cesarean section, the incision would be made, the baby would be pulled out of the abdomen by the doctor, 
very quickly cord clamped and cut, passed to a, another nurse or midwife for examination, and then work would begin on repairing the wound. But with a gentle cesarean section, the incision is made and the irritant action of the surgery causes the womb to actually have little contractions itself. And this irritant action actually pushes the baby out of the incision much more slowly than if it were forcibly sort of dragged out by the doctor. And some people argue that this is less traumatic for the baby and more satisfying for the mother. As I write in the book, many women who've had this kind of procedure report that it was much more fulfilling and empowering than maybe the traditional type of surgery that was done in an emergency situation. So uh, yeah, I mean, I I think as uh, rates of cesarean section continue to rise and rise and rise around the world, and we will be looking at ways of adapting this procedure to make it more acceptable and even enjoyable for the, the person at the center of it all. Well, it looks like we only have a few more minutes left. So let's talk a little bit of, about menopause, which is one of the last chapters of your book. Yet another French physician. They must have been a, quite a group of French physicians in the 19th <laughs> century. Uh, this one, uh, Charles de, de Gardin, uh, he coined the term menisposie in 1816. And once again, we have a man <laughs> coming up with the labels for women's experiences, which are, must really rankle. But uh, you, you go on to talk about how advertising campaigns of that era made it very clear that menopausal suffering and, and, and horror was posing the biggest threat, not to women, but to their husbands. Yeah, I mean, we, yes, the, the advertising of that time, and I cite a few examples in the book, was very much focused on the early forms of HRT, hormone replacement therapy. And oftentimes this was estrogen that was extracted from horse urine and sources like that. Right. Premarin is pregnant mare's urine. Exactly that. Yep. And uh, so so this drug was being used in its earliest stages. And the idea was that by using this drug, one could keep one's wife almost like frozen in time. She would remain (laughs) slim and attractive and laugh at your jokes at parties. And And lustful. Yeah, absolutely. Sexually available and and willing. And this was the sort of not so subtle message that these these ads were were putting out. So they were very much aimed at the male partner rather than the the woman herself who was going through these changes. And you talk about, if I can quote here, uh, like the birth of a child, the birth of a woman in menopause is ugly, beautiful, dangerous, and miraculous, a transition both corporeal and spiritual from one world to the next. So it's a really interesting reframe, (laughs) probably not the way most people frame it. It's a, it's a complex one. I, I didn't want to delve too deeply into menopause because for a couple of reasons, partly because it's really the ovaries rather than the uterus that are kind of controlling the, the menopausal transition, but also because there are so many books about menopause right now and you know many, many people go into it in much greater depth. So I thought it had been kind of covered elsewhere, but I wanted to nod to it as definitely an important transition in, in many people's lives and also absolutely nod to the fact that it's not one thing for all people. Well, and, and that it can be a psychological birth process. I thought it was a nice way to sort of tie it all together. Yeah. And and I use, I think, a, a really nice example from Ursula Le Guin's essay, The Space Crone, about, you know, a, a woman at this time of life rebirthing herself as this like almost cosmic being on, on route to the final passage, which is obviously death. And I, I didn't want to frame menopause as being universally positive because for a lot of people it isn't, certainly 
isn't really for me so far, but uh, I wanted to nod to the, the light and shade of it and, and acknowledge it as part of the, the life cycle of the womb. Well, Lee, I think we're out of, out of time. Uh, so the uh, recent author of Womb, the inside story of where we all began. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving and it's been really fascinating. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.